I love you, honey bunny. Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 32, Royale with Cheese. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. In this episode, I'm going to continue my year-long look at 1994, the most important year of the 90s, with an episode about one of the most important and influential movies of the year, if not the decade, and that is Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. But first, I have emails. This first one is from Brad Dade. He writes, Hi, Tom. As I already listened... As I already listened to your great other podcast, Taking Flight and In Country, I knew I wanted to try out Pop Culture Affidavit, but I kept putting it off as I have come to realize my addiction to podcasts and have to balance this addiction, which of course I fail at on a daily basis. Yes, Brad, I too am in podcast debt and struggling to get out. I don't know if there is debt counseling for podcasts. Anyway, he continues, so... I finally decided to scroll through the episode list to see if anything piqued my interest. That's when I saw see a two-parter with the great Michael Bailey talking about 90s comics. As someone who has been following comics for 25 years and lived through the scary, dark decade of comics, I had to check it out. I loved it. Made me wish I could join in the discussion. Then, when I've just allowed myself a small taste of this podcast at the end of the episode, you tease with a look at The Crow for next episode. Of course, I had to jump on that one, too. So so now I've downloaded at least 12 episodes so far and just can't stop. I turned 40 recently, which has caused me to look back at the various comics, movies, and music that influenced me for all these years. Your show is simply perfect timing for someone like me looking back on his relationship with pop culture and its meaning to me. Thank you for that. Cheers, Brad. Well, really, thank you, Brad. I'm glad you found something with this podcast, which I'm doing for many of the same reasons you're listening to it. Uh, I'm I'm 37, uh, yes, in a row. And there's something in each of the topics that I cover that speaks to me or is significant to me in a way. I pick stuff that I love to talk about, and since my taste is honest, honestly is random, I love that I can cover just a wide range of stuff. And that being said, if there's any drawback, it's that there's so much that I'd love to cover, that I actually have more topics than I have time. (laughs) I guess it's a nice problem to have, though. And the next two two emails, I have two more emails, and they're both from His Excellency, Trentus Magnus, um, who a few weeks ago, as I've already mentioned, and if you haven't gone to listen to it, go listen to it, he had me on his 50th episode, which was awesome. His podcast, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, is an excellent, excellent podcast, and it is it's it's uh, really, really worth listening to. Um, I just listened to the Big Book of Scandal episode, his Big Book Report episodes with Chris Honeywell are some of my favorites, uh, and and they're they're great, great listening. So go over to Trent, go over to Two True Freaks, and download Trentus and subscribe to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. You will not be disappointed. Anyway, he writes, "Hey Tom Magnus here." Just wanted to drop a note and let you know I really dug episode 30, summer 1999. 
I, too, have vivid memories of that summer, but probably not for the same exact reasons. I'd just graduated from high school. Prom hadn't been much earlier. I'd been sick for a really long time with some pretty horrifying gunk that caused me to miss a good chunk of the second semester of my senior year. Anything was fun to do after that. So prom, the Phantom Menace, graduation, and that summer all blurred together for me. It felt like the sky was the limit, even though I didn't bother enrolling in college right away, and my doctor wouldn't release me to get a job and work because he feared a relapse. But I saw pretty much all the movies you mentioned. Time has seriously affected my view of The Phantom Menace. Originally, that's what made me a Star Wars fan, but the 3D release from a few years back was the first time I'd seen the movie in theaters since 1999. And time hadn't been kind to it. For the first time, I saw what the complainers meant by Jar Jar and his aggravating antics. The fact that it was completely intentional on George's part doesn't make him less aggravating. The dominoes fell from there. I became more disaffected with the prequels in general to the point where I really can't watch them anymore. At the same time, I don't think The Matrix has benefited much from the ensuing 15 years either. I'm apparently the only one in the room who enjoyed the sequels, but the first movie is fairly one note. The movie deserves a lot of credit for reinventing the way the Western audience approached cinema, or for that we should be forever grateful. But at the same time, several elements of The Matrix just seem really dated these days. American Beauty is another film I fell in love with at the time, but which, which history has been tough on. Everybody in the movie is pretty much eventually shown to be a selfish prick, and it's hard to sympathize with any of them. In the plus column, though, American Beauty showed, showed us Thora Birch and Mina Savari's Twin Peaks, so it's not all bad. Plus, it's hard not to love the film's score. I'm not a film score guy at all, but the American Beauty film score is a masterpiece. I'll agree with that. I probably should rewatch that at some point myself. Trentus continues, Fight Club, eh, I didn't get it then, I don't get it now. I mean, I follow the story, don't misunderstand me, I just don't understand the fixation people had for all that those years. Overall, though, what those movies, The Summer of 1999, Steal My Sunshine, and Episode 30 mostly remind me of is a time of life when I simultaneously felt like A, like the sky was the limit, and B, scared shitless by post-high school life. Your show especially brought back all those feelings of cockiness mixed with borderline panic that is every high school graduate's birthright. Great jo show, sir. Job well done. His Excellency Magnus. I had completely forgotten that Fight Club came out in 1999. <laughs> Was it late 99? I don't think I see. I didn't see Fight Club until about 2000 or 2001. I rented the DVD uh, from Hollywood Video, uh, of all places. I remember liking it, but I didn't have that much of an impact on me. And then again, that was my early 20s when I started going to the movies a lot less. I missed out on quite a number of big movies. But I'm glad you were able to share a little bit of what you remember from that summer. I, I know I broke from the 94 coverage for this, uh, which isn't unprecedented that I had done it at least once before. But it was one of those episodes that I wanted to do because, like I said, I've been talking to somebody about The Phantom Menace and then kind of added up all the movies that came out in that summer and realized, wow, no wonder I went to the movies so many times. By the way, 1984 is another summer that was like that. And uh, for my take on that kind of, uh, I'm going to be taking part in a blogathon with the Forgotten Films blog. Uh, he, Todd has, who runs the Forgotten Filmcast, has asked several of us to contribute a look at one of the big movies from 1984, and I will be covering Police Academy. So look for that on the blog sometime in August, uh, and you know, see how I worked that in there. 
Anyway, Trentus has another email, and the next one is titled Episode 10, Remembering Bayside High. He says, Hey Tom, Magnus here. You're right in implying that Saved by the Bell is the glue of our generation. Our grandparents had World War II. Our parents had The Graduate. We had Zack and Kelly. There's a sense in which that's a sad case of diminishing returns, but perhaps another topic for another time. As I say, Saved by the Bell is the unifying element of our generation. It's funny how seldom people remark on how the Bayside Six really shouldn't have been able to stand being another one of this company. High school is a caste-oriented system. Things proceed relatively smoothly, so as long as everyone understands, recognizes, and never tries to overstep the boundaries. There's a mostly unspoken rule about mixing the classes together. By all rights, Slater should have been doinking Kelly. Zach should have been perpetually single in spite of brief flings with relatively less popular girls. Jesse should have been annoyed by all of them and too stuck up to give any of them the time of day. Lisa shouldn't have known the rest of them even exist because she's too wrapped up in her own BS. And Screech probably would have been developing some kind of miniature nuclear reactor to replace the microwave oven, which he'd later patent sell for eight or nine figures and retire at the age of 30 after spending all of junior high and high school getting pushed around and tormented by Slater and Zack. And these truths were not lost on any Saved by the Bell viewer. My firm suspicion is that even as children, we knew that Saved by the Bell was either a work of pure fantasy or else was shamelessly pushing a bill of goods. There's simply nothing to sustain the friendships the Bayside Six enjoyed with one another. But you buy their camaraderie on the basis that it's not just a work of fiction, it's a work of lazy, often melodramatic, and always cheesy fiction. Saved by the Bell's legacy looms large. In a strange fulfillment of the impossible friendships depicted in the show, I once participated in a group project for my English class. The group was about as motley as an assortment as the Bayside Six. Our appreciation of Saved by the Bell was literally the only thing we had in common. Shooting the bull over the show somehow broke the ice between all of us well enough that we could get to work. After that, it was the opposite of the Breakfast Club. We went back to ignoring and sometimes hating each other. Because high school is a caste-oriented system, don't overstep your boundaries. In fact, in a weird kind of way, you could view Saved by the Bell as sort of the companion to the Breakfast Club. Both challenged the caste-oriented system of high school. Saved by the Bell did it by refusing to acknowledge they even exist, even though that we know they do. The Breakfast Club did it by breaking them down, even we know that even though we know that's impossible. Oddly enough, the only real beef I have with Saved by the Bell is that part of me thinks it would have been cool, kind of cool, if Haley Mills had made a cameo appearance in the series finale. I mean, I doubt she had much of anything better to do. Small potatoes. Point is that it was a fine episode. Job well done, sir. And yes, I'm making my way through your back catalog because I love your show that much. His Excellency Magnus. Thanks again, and I have nothing to add to that because that is quite possible one of the best examinations of that show I have ever heard. It's just awesome. And um, so I'm going to take my break now. <laughs> um, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to plug a couple. I'm going to plug a show. And when I get back, I will talk about. Well, then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead-up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... 
Lucy, shut the f*** up. <laughs> Sorry about that, the dog. Trend is Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, let's get in the character. I'm so interested in Big Man's wife. Well, he's going out of town in Florida and he asked me if I take care of the wife. He's gone. Take care. No, man. Just show her a good time. Make sure she don't get lonely. Girl. You see, this is a moral test of oneself. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. I love you so much, can't count on Whether or not you can maintain loyalty. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts. It never helps. In the fifth. Your ass goes down. I have to say, you play with matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns for this kind of deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in the garage. Take me to it. Uncomfortable silences. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Rings, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Looking at something for me. Ain't my friend looking. Die, you mother! A new film directed by Quentin Tarantino. You really thinking about quitting? Most definitely. Of course you're going to do that. Basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane and Kung Fu. <laughs> Pulp Fiction was released on October 14th, 1994, making $9 million in its first weekend and going on to make a total domestic office domestic box office of $107.9 million. It was the 10th highest grossing movie of 1994, behind The Mask at $119.9 million, and just ahead of Interview with the Vampire at $105.2 million. In addition, Pulp Fiction resurrected the career of John Travolta, and it made huge stars out of Uma Thurman and Samuel L. Jackson, as well as its director, Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino had already made a name for himself with the film Reservoir Dogs and would add to his 
reputation by the time the film came out on video in 1995 with various credits for writing and producing on True Romance, Natural Born Killers, and Killing Zoe. The film was nominated for several awards and won several as well. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Tarantino won Best Screenplay at both the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. Other Oscar nominations included Best Actor for John Travolta, Best Supporting Actor for Samuel L. Jackson, Best Supporting Actress for Uma Thurman, Best Film Editing for Sally Menke, Best Director for Quentin Tarantino, and Best Picture of the Year. Now, I have to stop and note here that the Best Picture of the Year is one that I actually covered on the blog last week, and that's Forrest Gump, which I believe was the highest-grossing movie of the year. Uh, It was either that or The Lion King. But anyway, if you want to go and see what I think about Forrest Gump, go read that entry. It's called The Five Five Things to Love and Five Things to Hate About Forrest Gump. And I will say here, though, that I've been in the opinion of quite a number of years that Forrest Gump should not have won Best Picture for 1994. I could probably do a whole episode on why, uh, but I will say, but but for brevity's sake and, and just not to waste your time, I will say that um, if you look at the field for that year, you have some really, really tough competition. Uh, the other four movies nominated the year were Four Weddings and a Funeral, Quiz Show, The Shawshank Redemption, and of course Pulp Fiction. Now, it's been nearly 20 years since I watched either Four Weddings and a Funeral or Quiz Show, so I can't really speak to them, but I think... I'll prove my case nicely for Pulp Fiction over the course of this episode. And, well, the Shawshank Redemption is probably the closest competition that Pulp Fiction has to Best Picture, both of which I think are better than Forrest Gump. Um, If anything, though, to give the Shawshank Redemption even more credit, combine this with a few good men, and you now have the Kane Hackman theory for the new millennium. I'm just saying, test it out. It usually works. At any rate, you can expect blog posts on each of the rest of these movies before the year is over. I do plan on doing some coverage for all of the Best Picture nominees, even though I'm not giving them individual episodes. Now, on to Pulp Fiction. What I usually do with movies is give a synopsis, then a review, then do some sort of top five or top ten. But Pulp Fiction, the way it's set up is that it's done in sections. So I'm going to treat the episode like it. I'm going to synopsize the particular section of the film. I'm going to synopsize the film section by section, give my review of each section as I go along. Then I'll do some overall comments and finish up by talking about the soundtrack and the film's legacy. The film is basically an attempt at putting the classic pulp novels on screen. And Tarantino says that much right away, providing a definition of pulp before going to a very short prologue involving Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer as Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, two criminals who decide that they're going to hold up the coffee shop where they're having breakfast. They pull out their guns, the credits roll, and, well, we won't be seeing them until later in the film because the film's narrative structure is not linear. So this scene actually comes toward will come in back toward the end of the film, even though chronologically it it kind of happens toward the middle of the narrative. It's not as confusing as I'm making it sound right now, trust me. Anyway, the first segment of the film, right after the credits, uh, which really doesn't have a name. There are some that are named, and there are some that that really aren't, but um, this one isn't. Serves to introduce us to the film's main characters and set up everything else, which is what a good opening segment for anything does. It also provides some of the film's most famous dialogue. Two gangsters, Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta, 
and Jules, played by Samuel L. Jackson, head toward an apartment building somewhere in the Los Angeles area. As they drive, they talk about Vincent's recent trip to Amsterdam. Okay, so tell me again about the hash bar. Okay, what you want to know? Hash is legal there, right? Yeah, it's legal, but ain't 100% legal. I mean, you just can't walk into a restaurant, roll the joint, and stop puffing away. I mean, they want you to smoke in your home or certain designated places. And those are hash bars. Yeah, it breaks down like this. Okay, it's, it's legal to buy it. It's legal to own it. And if you're the proprietor of a hash bar, it's legal to sell it. It's legal to carry it, but 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 that doesn't matter because get a load of this. All right. If you get stopped by a cop in Amsterdam, it's illegal for them to search you. I mean, that's the right that cops in Amsterdam don't have. Oh, man. I'm going. That's all it is to it. I'm fucking going. <laughs> no, baby. You dig it the most. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup, I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. Well, what do they call it? They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese? That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Well, Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> What they call a whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. You know what they put on French fries in Holland instead of ketchup? What? what mayonnaise. God. Hey. <laughs> I seen them do it, man. They fucking drown them in that shit. Yeah. As well as Vincent's upcoming date of sorts with Mia Wallace, who's the wife of their boss, Marcellus Wallace, a gangster, a, like a notorious gangster. Marcellus is going to be out of town and he has asked Vincent to keep her company. Vincent's a little hesitant because of a rumor that Marcellus threw a thug named Tony Rocky Horror out of a window after finding out that Tony Rocky Horror gave me a foot massage and he and Jules argue over how intimate a foot massage actually is. They then head into the apartment where they're you know where their where their job is supposed to take place and they confront three people about a briefcase. The briefcase belongs to Marcellus Wallace, and he has sent Vincent and Jules to get it back. The extremely nervous leader of this group, Brett, has a conversation with Jules while Vincent kind of rummages around and eventually finds the briefcase. By the way, we're never told what's in the briefcase throughout the entire movie, except that it's something that causes every person who sees its contents to pause and admire it. Uh, Internet theories have ranged from its diamonds to the gold LeMay suit that Val Kilmer wore as Elvis in True Romance, to Marcellus Wallace's soul. I kind of like the last one, although Tarantino, I think Tarantino's official position on it is it's whatever you want it to be. Uh, but it is something of great value to Wallace, and it is something of that's obviously of great value to Wallace because everybody who looks inside the suitcase kind of gives it a look like a like a like a wow moment of real pause when they look at it. Now, Brett and Jules have a conversation, um, and, and 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 Jules ends up shooting Brett. But it's hard to describe it. So what I'm going to do, and and it's it's long. It's about five or six minutes long. But I'm going to drop the whole thing in right here so that you can just kind of hear it. Hamburgers. Hamburgers. 
The cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. What kind of hamburgers? Cheeseburgers. No, 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 no. Where'd you get them? McDonald's, Wendy's, Jack in the Box, where? Big Kahuna Burger. Big Kahuna Burger? That's that Hawaiian burger joint. I hear they got some tasty burgers. I ain't never had one myself. How are they? They're good. You mind if I try one of yours? This is yours here, right? Yeah. Mm hmm. This is a tasty burger. Vincent, you ever had a big kahuna burger? Want a bite? They're real tasty. Well, if you like burgers, give them a try sometime. Me? I can't usually get them because my girlfriend's a vegetarian, which pretty much makes me a vegetarian. But I do love the taste of a good burger. Mm. You know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in France? No. Tell them, Vincent. Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. You know why they call it that? Because of the metric system? Check out the big brain on bread. You're a smart motherfucker, that's right. The metric system. Send this. Sprite. Sprite, good. You mind if I have some of your tasty beverage to wash this down? Go right ahead. Seagull. You know why we're here? Why don't you tell my man Vince here where you got the shit here at? It's over there. It's I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. You were saying? It's in the cupboard. No, no the one by your knees. We happy? Yeah, we happy. Look, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I didn't get your name. I got yours, uh, Vincent, right? But, but I, I never got your. My name. name's Pitt, and your ass ain't talking your way out of this shit. No, no, no. I just want you to know how. I just want you to know how sorry we are. That, that things got so fucked up with us and, and Mr. Wallace. It, 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 we, we got into this thing with the best intentions, really. I never... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions? What's the matter? Oh, you were finished? Oh, well, allow me to retort. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? What? English!
English, motherfucker. Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? I didn't. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And Marcellus Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. You read the Bible, Brett? Yes. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Now, this has to be the most quoted section in the entire movie uh, because between uh, Ezekiel 25.17 which is more of a mashup of various passages from the Bible and not exactly the exact direct quote of Ezekiel 25.17. Trust me, my roommates in college and I looked it up after watching this enough times. Uh, and then that Royal Royale with cheese bit, it's it's really, really makes this one of the best opening sequences of a movie that I have ever seen. I mean, it's right up there with, with, the, with the Star Destroyer scene in the beginning of Star Wars for me. And I know that's high, it's a high praise, high comparison, but, you know, this is a tight scene. It's done really, really well. And, you know, say what you want about Travolta and, and his, you know, career as of the last 10 years or so, but, uh, and, and personal life and everything you've ever, ever heard, seen or heard about him. But in this film, which, like I said, was his comeback film, He's tapping into what made him cool back in the 70s. You know, that Vinnie Barbarino, Tony Manero vibe. And he just pulls that out and he pulls off Vincent Vega just masterfully. Plus, he has this great chemistry with just about everybody else he's in the film with. Um, He has scenes with Jackson, Uma Thurman, and Bruce Willis and all three times. He uh, he just knows exactly exactly what to do, and and it shows how good he of an actor he actually is. Um, their conversations, his conversation with Am- about Amsterdam uh, with with Jackson, probably launched a thousand or a million college students to Amsterdam so that they could go out and smoke pot out in the open because you know that's what you're supposed to go to Amsterdam for, apparently. Um, you know, but. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, the conversations themselves are not really that necessary to the plot, but they're great because they, they're just banter. They're banter between co-workers, and they're great character pieces. And, and and that's what I think we're supposed to feel here for these two characters. They're not—they're bad guys. They're, they're gangsters, but they're not villains. 
they're they're doing a job. Um, the job involves murder that makes them criminals, yes, but it's not like they have a cause or they're they're trying to screw up for somebody, screw something up for somebody. They don't seem to be anybody's particular antagonist. They are just hired guns doing what they've been asked to do. Now, the back and forth that I just played between Jackson and Frank Whaley, who plays Brett and who you might remember from career opportunities. Oh, who the hell am I kidding? The only thing anyone remembers from Career Opportunities is Jennifer Connelly in a white tank top. I'll give you a moment. Anyway, Frank Whaley is awesome in this scene because, of, first of all, he's dressed in a button-down shirt and khakis like he's going to go spend the day teaching high school or something. And he's so wonderfully nervous against Jackson's cool and then angry demeanor. And Jackson, by the way, downright scary. Um, and doesn't overdo it. He, you know, it, again, there are plenty of moments in this movie where you could, uh, any actor would have the opportunity to just chew scenery for long periods of time. And Sam Jackson does not really do that. He he really brings a lot to the role and, and really, um, you know, doesn't go completely overboard when he's yelling out um, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen and does his and does the whole what does Marcellus Wallace look like and 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 the yelling and everything and uh, and and honestly I would not want to be <laughs> the business end of that speech. <laughs> the next section of the film is called Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. Uh, it opens up with Marcellus Wallace in a long monologue telling boxer Butch Coolidge, who's played by Bruce Willis, that he's supposed to take a dive in his upcoming match. He's saying, you know, in the fifth round, you're going to go down. He's like, and, and, and Butch repeats, in the fifth, I go down. And he tell, and, and Marcellus just says, you know, you don't let pride get in the way of this. Uh, what's really cool about the scene is that it's all shot on a close-up of Bruce Willis. So you don't see a back and forth. There's no two shots or anything like that. It's just Bruce Willis listening intently to Marcellus. And we see a little bit of Marcellus from the back. And in fact, we don't really see Marcellus until... Uh, until later in the film, uh, from the front, and he's played. And uh, Marcellus, by the way, is played wonderfully by Ving Rhames, another person who got a real boost in his career from this movie. Anyway, uh, Butch repeats the instructions in the fifth. I go down, and he he goes and buys a pack of cigarettes and has a snippy little exchange with Vince Va- Vincent on the way out the door, which. Kind of will be important later in the movie. Jules and Vincent, by the way, they still have the suitcase. They're dropping it off to Marcellus, but they're not wearing the suits they had on at the beginning of the film. They're wearing shorts and t-shirts. So something happened between the confrontation with Brett and when they walked into this this cocktail lounge where Marcellus is, is conducting business. Um, another Again, because of the narrative structure of the film, just pay attention to that. You'll You'll see it later. We then see Vincent go to his drug dealer's uh, house, Lance, his drug dealer, played by Eric Stoltz. And then he goes on his date with Mia Wallace, who's played by Uma Thurman. Vincent and Mia go back, go to Jack Rabbit Slim's, a 1950s and 1960s themed restaurant. Um, think of... Have you ever been to Hollywood Studios in Disney and they have the 50s primetime cafe and the sci-fi drive-in uh, restaurant? Uh, those places, you know, very, very kind of kitschy, themey type of stuff. Uh, in this case, Jack Rabbit Slims has your waiters are all dressed up as 
uh, different figures from the 50s and 60s, and they get waited on by Buddy Holly, who's played by Steve Buscemi. Anyway, um, so while they're eating in the restaurant and, and he's having a, a, you know, Mia's having a $5 milkshake, um, which I'm not the only person in the world who's ever ordered an expensive milkshake and, and said, if anything to myself, after taking a sip of the $5 milkshake, it's a pretty fucking good milkshake. Um, anyway, uh, so they have some back and forth between them, especially, and they do, he does bring up the foot massage and she's like, uh, whatever happened between my husband and Tony Rocky Horror is between my husband and Tony Rocky Horror and you guys have to stop gossiping. Um, and we see that they have a nice chemistry between them. We also see that Mia has a coke habit, and that will be important later. But there's a flirting going on that that Vincent did not intend to do, uh, and uh, and and then they actually they go on to win a dance contest. Uh, and then they head back to Mia's house, uh, Marcellus's house. Obviously, Vincent goes to the bathroom to take a piss and actually coach himself on how he's not going to try to sleep with the boss's wife. <laughs> While he's in the bathroom, Mia, who happens to be wearing Vincent's trench coat, finds the bag of heroin that he'd bought from Lance earlier in the day. She thinks it's Coke, and she snorts it. And almost immediately, it goes, you know, there's a huge rush, and her eyes roll in the back of her head, and she passes out. When Vincent finally gets out of the bathroom a few minutes later, he finds her face down, kind of pus and, and snot and blood kind of oozing out of her her mouth and her nose and he freaks out and he drives um he drives to Lance's house parks his car on the front lawn and this does not make Lance happy but uh they they wind up reviving Mia by giving her an adrenaline shot to the heart Later, Vincent takes Mia home, and they agree this did not happen, uh, or at least that Marcellus does not need to know that this happened. And she says goodnight to him, and as she enters the house and walks away, he blows her a kiss. Now, keep in mind, for the sake of brevity, I'm glossing over some of the plot details here, but that's the gist of it. This section doesn't work, though, if Travolta and Thurman don't have on-screen chemistry, which they do. They do in spades, and it's a great, great... Uh, a segment. Mia and, and Vincent are in a way perfect for one another. And moments like the one he has in the bathroom back at her place, telling himself that he'll be polite with the drink and he's about to have with her, but then he's going to go, he's like, you go home, you jerk off and you go to sleep and you go back to work and you're fine. It, it's little moments like that that make this a really, really great sequence. And of course, you know, there's the dance scene. And the dance scene, by the way, was written before Travolta was cast. Um, Tarantino always intended to have a dance scene, but it was like, this is just icing on the cake for Tarantino, who's a fan of the 70s. And if you're going to get somebody from the 70s to dance in a movie, John Travolta is definitely the guy you do. And it's, this is this is just, this I think is, is the big, really one of the big scenes that really, really put Travolta back on the map. It It is such a cool scene. Um, and if you notice really quickly, it looks like he has a hole in his sock the entire time. I, I, I noticed that watching the movie. But uh, but really, it, it shows how well the whole segment, because you have this this fun little date, and then you have her overdosing, um, and and the whole the heroin thing, it shows how well Tarantino in Pulp Fiction mixes the light with the dark. Um, because the date goes downhill <laughs> when he finds her, and and uh, the shot in the heart, which I honestly don't think would actually work, but this well, it's Pulp Fiction, so just don't worry about it being scientifically accurate. Um, this is one of those scenes that sticks with you because 
I don't know about you, but the idea of having a huge needle plunge into my chest is n- kind of makes me squirm. <laughs> Our next sequence is the gold watch, and it opens with this scene. your daddy died in a POW camp? Well, this here is Captain Coons. He was in the POW camp with daddy. Hello, little man. Boy, I sure heard a bunch about you. See, I was a good friend of your dad's. We were in that Hanoi pit of hell together over five years. Hopefully, you'll never have to experience this yourself, but when two men are in a situation like me and your dad were for as long as we were, you take on certain responsibilities of the other. If it had been me who would not made it, Major Coolidge, you'd be talking right now to my son, Jim. The way it turned out, I'm talking to you. Butch. Got something for you. This watch I got here was first purchased by your great-grandfather during the First World War. It was bought in a little general store in Knoxville, Tennessee. Made by the first company to make wristwatches. Up till then, people just (laughs) carried pocket watches. It was bought by... Private Doughboy Orion Coolidge on the day he set sail for Paris. This was your great-grandfather's war watch, and he wore it every day he was in that war. And he'd done his duty, went home to your great-grandmother, took the watch off, put an old coffee can, and in that can it stayed till your granddad, Dane Coolidge, was called upon by his country to go overseas and fight the Germans once again. It's time they called it World War II. Great-grandfather gave this watch to your granddad for good luck. Unfortunately, Dane's luck wasn't as good as his old man's. Dane was a Marine, and he was killed, along with all the other Marines at the Battle of Wake Island. Granddad was facing death. He knew it. None of those boys had any illusions, but they were leaving that island alive, so three days before the Japanese took the island, your granddad asked a gunner, on an Air Force transport named Wanaki. Man he'd never met before in his life. To deliver to his infant son, we'd never seen in the flesh, his gold watch. Three days later, your granddad was dead, but Wanaki kept his word. After the war was over, he paid a visit to your grandmother, delivering to your infant father his dad's gold watch. This watch. watch it was on your daddy's wrist when he was shot down on Hanoi. He was captured put in a Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, it would be confiscated, taken away. 
The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's gonna put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright. So he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass, two years. Then, after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I gave the watch to you. I think that this is where, outside of Saturday Night Live sketches, I learned who Christopher Walken was. All right. He'd been in Batman Returns, and by the time that Pulp Fiction came out, I had seen Batman Returns. I saw it in the theater. But this is like full on Walken. This, you know, he's he's not like full Walken in in Batman Returns as much as this is this is this is Christopher Walken. Um, uh, True Romance, I think, was the other uh, movie that I'd seen him in, and, and that's that great great scene with him and Dennis Hopper. I, I love that scene. Anyway, um, but this is this is definitely one of the scenes that launched a thousand comedian impressions of the man. <laughs> Walken, though, he's only in this one scene in the movie, and the entire sequence is about because the entire sequence is about Butch. And the fight that he's supposed to throw. Remember, in the previous sequence, we'd seen him talking to Marcellus Wallace, and Mar- Wallace, Marcellus had said, um, "You know, in the fifth you go down." He's like, "In the fifth I go down." But the thing is, after you see the walk-in scene, Butch wakes up, and you're—it's implied that this is what he was dreaming about while he was in the locker room waiting for the fight to start. And he's covered in sweat, and they're like, "All right, Butch, it's time to go." And he he walks out, and he's all fired up, and uh, and. Instead of throwing the fight, he beats his opponent so badly in the ring that he kills the opponent. And then he escapes out a window uh, to a waiting cab, one that's driven by Esmeralda Villalobos, a sexy woman who seems to be a little too obsessed with the idea of what it's like to kill another man. Butch then heads to the motel room he's sharing with his wife, Fabienne. And the next morning, the two of them get ready to skip town. And that's when he realizes the gold watch, you know, the gold watch is missing. Fabian thinks that she grabbed it from uh, the apartment, their apartment before they they left, but she might be mistaken. And because she's mistaken, he flips out on her and then heads to the door to his apartment where he's pretty sure somebody's going to be waiting for him. He parks a few blocks over and sneaks through the neighborhood and then sneaks into the apartment. When he gets there, it doesn't look like anybody's there, and uh, he grabs the watch, but then he, he winds up seeing a large gun with a silencer sitting on the table. He picks up the gun, and a moment later, Vincent emerges from the bathroom and shoots, and Butch shoots him dead. Butch then heads back to the motel, but before he gets there, he stops at a stoplight, and at that exact moment, crossing the street with what looks like a box of donuts, is Marcellus Wallace. The two lock eyes... And Butch plows into him with the car. A few moments later, they both revive from the crash, and Marcellus starts shooting at Butch. Butch manages to get away and escapes into a pawn shop. When Marcellus follows him in, Butch gets the better of him and starts punching him, repeating Marcellus's pride speech from earlier in the movie. Then, the owner of the pawn shop, Maynard, pulls a shotgun on him and knocks Butch out with the butt of the said shotgun. Maynard then calls Zed. Butch and Marcellus wake up in a dungeon where Maynard and Zed reveal their intentions, and that's is they're going to rape them. 
They bring Marcellus into a back room and leave Butch in the care of the Gimp, a guy in a leather suit. Butch breaks free of his restraints and knocks out the Gimp. Then he's able to. Then, when he's about to leave the pawn shop, he reconsiders and he looks around for a weapon. Finding a samurai sword, he heads back downstairs and sees Zed raping Marcellus while Maynard watches. He kills Maynard, and just as he's about to kill Zed, Marcellus says, "Step aside, Butch." Grabs Maynard's shotgun and shoots Zed square in the groin. Marcellus tells Butch that they're even, and he can and Butch can leave on two conditions. First, he leaves Los Angeles permanently, and second, this stays between them. Butch agrees, and he leaves, stealing Zed's motorcycle and then meeting up with Fabienne back at the motel, and then they then leave town. Well, I like this section. Of the movie. I like all the whole movie. But this particular section is the weakest out of all of them because the interaction between Butch and Fabienne is probably my least favorite part of the entire film. Uh, it slows things down. Fabienne's really annoying. I know she's supposed to be annoying, but it's almost a little too much and makes me want to fast forward through through some of her scenes. In fact, if it wasn't for the second half of the section with Butch heading to the apartment and the whole pawn shop scene... I would fast forward because chronologically this is the end of the movie. Um, everything that happens after after this uh, is takes place before it. But um, but it's still worth watching. And and by the way, I, I didn't give this detail when I when I went over it. Um, <laughs> Butch kills Vincent, and we we. We at least got a little bit of a hint that the two of them didn't like each other when they ran into each other in the cocktail lounge earlier in the film. But here, the reason that Butch gets the better of Vincent is that, well, A, Vincent left his gun on the table when he went to go to the bathroom. Um, But B, Butch decides he's going to stop in the kitchen really quickly and make some Pop-Tarts. And he throws them in the toaster. And then he notices the gun. And... Vincent comes out, he looks at Vincent, he's holding the gun, the toaster pops up, and that's when he starts shooting. It's a really, really well done scene, um, because there's just this, that pause when they're looking at each other, because Vincent's like, oh shit, you know, and, and, and Butch is just like, I've got this guy where I want him, and then, it, but but nothing happens, and then like, you know, here comes the toaster, and then, and it, it's, it's just that well done, but... Um, it's really fortunate that Butch is a guy who likes his Pop-Tarts hot. Because I know plenty of people who will get Pop-Tarts and just eat them right out of the box without having to break out the toaster and toast them up. So the fact that Butch unwraps them, puts them in the toaster, hits it down, it's it's like, you know, yeah, yeah, just enjoying a hot breakfast as opposed to a cold one. That saved this man's life and brought about Vincent Vega's death. Anyway, now, I don't enjoy rape. Nobody enjoys rape, but it's not something I like seeing in movies, um, especially when it's there for the shock value. Now, this whole movie is more or less about being shocking to a certain degree, so it makes sense within the, the context of the plot. There are other movies where there's there's rape, and it totally makes sense within the context of the plot. Thelma and Louise, for instance. So, you know... You know, it's there for a reason, but um, the rape also has consequences. Uh, you know, Butch 
shows that he's ultimately this is this film's about the seedy underbelly of society. You know, these are all gangsters and, and, and ne'er do wells. Butch shows that he has a conscience by going back with the samurai sword. You know not to get to to make sure that he's making something up to Marcellus, but it was just like I cannot leave this man here in this position with these two. And uh and and you know, he kills him and then uh Marcellus has of course the phrase I'm gonna get medieval on your ass, uh, is is one that that gets repeated over and over and over and over again, or the the get medieval on you part of it you hear quite a bit. It's almost part of the vernacular at this point. But one of my favorite lines of the entire movie is where he's like, you know, you've lost all your LA privileges, and he says, you know, you don't speak about this to anybody. He says, this is Marcellus tells Butch, this shit is between you, me, and soon to be living the rest of his short ass life in agonizing pain, Mister Rapist here. It ain't nobody else's business. I don't. Know why? I just this is just one of my favorite lines. I think it's I think it's the phrase, Mister Soon to be living the the rest of his short ass life in agonizing pain. <laughs> I've always loved that line. The violence, by the way, throughout the whole movie, the violence, while being cited as over the top in places, is actually done very well. Uh, because it's actually, if you really look at this, this movie, it's violent, but it's not overly violent. Um, it it's selectively it's violent where it has to be, and it's realistic too. Or there's a realistic in that like Tarantino wants you to believe that these things actually happened, as opposed to be kind of like a cartoon like violence. Um, and it's a grittier violence because you know that's the, that's the pulp books. Um, but for instance, okay, when Mar- Butch hits Marcellus with the car. The car is total because Ving Rhames is a big guy, and he and he spins the car spins out of control, and he hits something, and 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 they both revive. And Butch can't walk straight, and Marcellus can't shoot straight. This isn't Commando. This isn't like Lethal Weapon. This is this is you know. There's a certain amount of okay, he wouldn't be able to do that to that, and, and I appreciate that in the film, especially because it leads to you know different elements of the plot but um you know there you get the sense that that tarantino is paying attention to the details as opposed to having kind of like an action type of feel to it if you know what i'm saying anyway moving on to the last section of the film this is the bonnie situation uh and the bonnie situation picks up right where ezekiel twenty five seventeen left off but instead of watching jules talk we hear Jules's speech from the other room because there's a guy in the bathroom with the apartment of the apartment and he's holding a huge gun this guy by the way is played by Alexis Arquette and it's one of the few non-drag non um gay character roles that he was actually ever seen or that I've ever seen him in uh Prior to this, the only thing I'd ever seen him in was... Uh, he's in like a music video from the 80s, if you really, really watch, because he was a kid. But he's in Threesome, playing the very, very uh, effeminate... Uh, they call him the lounge lizard, the desk lizard, the kid who works at the desk of the dorm. Uh, and then he would later... Everybody, most people would know him from being the boy George drag queen in The Wedding Singer... And then, uh, if you were a fan of... What was the name of that show? The Surreal Life, I think. One of those celebrity reality shows. Um, and and before he 
before he had actually had the surgery to become a become a woman. Um, he was on the show then. But uh, so Alexis Arquette, he's in the, he's in the he's in the bathroom. He's listening. Jules and Vincent shoot Brett, and then he comes out of the bathroom firing, and he misses every single shot. And then the two of them gun him down. They then take the suitcase and their informant, who was the other person in the room, Marvin, who's played by Phil Lamar, and they leave. While they're driving, Jules and Vincent, who's still holding his gun, by the way, resume their conversation about the foot massage. And Vincent turns around to ask Marvin what he thinks, and he actually accidentally blows his head off. He's like, got his gun. He's got the finger of the trigger. He turns out, what do you think? Boom. And he he blows his brains out all the way, all over the back of the car. Jules is ticked off because they're they're not an area where they know that where they have any like a friendly area they've got to get this car off the road and so jules figures out where they can go and it's the house of his friend jimmy jimmy played by quentin tarantino is not pleased and he tells them as much jules places a call to marcellus who tells him well he's sending the wolf to fix things winston wolf played by harvey keitel arrives and helps and take care of the situation, getting Vincent and Jules to clean the car and then hosing the two guys down. They take a car to a junkyard and then leave, wearing the t-shirts and shorts we saw earlier in the film and then heading to the coffee shop that we saw at the very beginning of the movie. Jules says that the morning's events were a sign and this is it, he's quitting. Vincent says Jules is crazy, he needs to calm down and then Vincent heads to the bathroom. And if you haven't noticed, this is a recurring thing in the movie that every time Vincent goes to the bathroom, something bad happens. So while he's in, because while he's in there, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny rob a place. And not only do they rob the register, they take everybody's wallet and they come around with a trash bag and uh, start taking wallets. And, and they see the briefcase and, and Tim Roth sits down Makes Jules open the briefcase. He shows him, and Jules is like, "Nope, you know I can't give you this." And eventually, his and, and Jules pulls his gun out because his gun was it was under the table. It's that that when Vincent comes back from the bathroom and seeing the situation, pulls his gun on Honey Bunny, and this kind of creates a Mexican standoff there. While this happens, Jules explains to Pumpkin that he's. Tim Roth that he's grown tired of his life as a gangster he actually recites Ezekiel twenty five seventeen a lot calmer and he doesn't kill him instead after getting his own wallet back it says bad motherfucker on it of course Jules lets the two of them go and after pumpkin honey buddy leave the coffee shop Vincent and Jules finish their breakfast and they leave themselves back when this came out there was a bit of a controversy about um Quentin Tarantino's liberal use of the N-word throughout the movie, especially in this sequence, when Tarantino himself gives a monologue about how he doesn't care how good his coffee is. He's more concerned about what's going to happen when his wife Bonnie comes home and finds the dead guy in the garage. I will say that after seeing this, too many of my friends then thought it was okay to use the word. Granted, we were only ever really around white people for the most part, and I don't think they'd ever actually say it in front of a black person, but I will say that I've never liked the word. Uh, in fact, I think I've had... I've had black students say it in front of me, in my classroom, and I'm like, could you not? And they're like, well, and I've had students go, it means ignorant. Like, how dare you tell me not to say this word? And 
I'm just like, look, you can you can believe that all you want. I don't want to hear the word in any context in my classroom, and it usually shuts them up enough. But really, Tarantino using it here, it seems that his whole monologue comes up. In fact, his whole role is this in this movie does come off as self-indulgent, and it's a little bit annoying to tell you the truth. What makes the whole portion of the film great is the banter between Jules and Vince that not Tarantino being there saying the N-word five times or whatever um, because, oh, I can say the N-word. It's my movie or something. So because the Jules and Vince banter while they're cleaning up brains off the back of the seat of this car is um, more of this sort of like co-worker banter, but this time they're pissed off at each other and they're comparing like, you know, which one of them's doing more work and, you know, how... How their you know how their tempers are flaring and stuff like that. It's it's again it's great. It's it's just great interaction between two actors have really really good chemistry and you know you've got you've and you've got also got Harvey Keitel as the wolf who's just one of those great great characters it, um, and, and who shows up the first time we see him he's wearing a tuxedo he's at a party at nine in the morning. I mean I'd love to have a job where I'm at a party in a tuxedo at nine in the morning, but. <laughs> And then we have the extended diner scene. Um, this place is a great wrap-up to the film, even though chronologically, like I said, it takes place much earlier than quite a bit of the film. In fact, Pulp Fiction is the first movie I ever saw where the story was told out of sequence. I'd seen movies before with framing devices, mind you, but never a film that that just um, where the narrative sequence was completely out of order without any sort of framing device to t- to tie it together. Um, and that made this movie, a, at least when I first saw it, a bit of a revelation. I mean, I had seen Reservoir Dogs before I saw Pulp Fiction, but it was like sometime in junior or senior of high school. But I saw this during my freshman year of college, which if you think about it, and this, that was fall of 95, that was the perfect time to see this for the first time. You know, I know Pulp Fiction came out in October of 94, but I completely missed it. For some reason, and I, instead I went to see, uh, looking at what was out in 1994 around that time, Interview the Vampire, Stargate, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I missed it on video when it first came out. I don't know why. But anyway, I got to college and Tarantino was already everywhere. Um, I think every single guy I knew bought at least one Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction poster at that poster sale we used to have on campus in the first week or two of school and they would all go up like we'd all buy posters put under our room wall in fact I miss those campus poster sales because like every poster was like five bucks and I got this I got the return of the Jedi poster I mean it was a replica it was an original one sheet but I got the return of the Jedi poster it was the two hands holding the lightsaber and it was all blue I don't know what did I do with that I might have thrown that that poster might have gotten wrecked and destroyed and, 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 and ultimately trashed but god I love that poster I mean, that's an awesome poster sale. Maybe one day I'll find a poster sale like that. Anyway, so my roommate Rich, um, I think it was his copy, and I'm pretty sure he went and bought it at Suncoast Video at the Towson Town Center Mall, and we watched this movie every single night for about three weeks straight during October. We'd put it in at about like maybe 11 o'clock night, 12 o'clock in the morning, because your freshman year of college, one in the morning, two in the morning, that's an early night. Um, in fact, and, and we just absorbed the movie. We'd quote the movie endlessly. 
Um, I remember every once in a while when I can't find something still, I can picture Rich walking around the, the, the dorm in his head going, it's my little black fucking medical book, <laughs> you know, and, and I remember that and, and, uh, and, you know, we had this and we had Reservoir Dogs and we had both soundtracks and we put both soundtracks on constant repeat in addition to some other CDs and stuff. And while most soundtracks at the time were still, still in many ways going for that hot band of the moment type of lineup, Tarantino's soundtracks, at least these first two, went in the opposite direction. They busted out stuff from the 60s and the 70s, some of which was actually pretty obscure. More importantly for me, though, this is actually the first soundtrack I ever owned where lines from the film were actually tracks in the CD. I know it's not the first time that's been done, and it certainly wouldn't be the last, but to me, this was a novelty. And I remember that it led me to start putting lines from movies on mixtapes I was making for people because uh, it's the kind of loser that I am. It's not just me, though. Well, it is just me who's the loser, but it's not just me who was influenced in some way or another by Pulp Fiction or by Quentin Tarantino. Now, I'm sure that a number of film students or movie fans could go through his movies with a fine-tooth comb, especially this movie, and find every last you know thing that he ripped off from somebody else or that he was copying off of. But for those of us who weren't in the know, this and Reservoir Dogs were a bit of a re- revelation. And um, it's no wonder that we started kind of... This got like a Dark Knight Returns sort of effect, where this was a really, really good thing that that there had many, many imitators and people were cribbing from this movie, whether it was the dialogue, the set pieces, the violence, the, the way it was shot, the way it was edited, the music, you know, there were pale imitations, there were, and there were things that were influences. In fact, if you want a scene that's a great kind of knock on Tarantino, but also a knock on Tarantino's critics, watch the movie Swingers, and I think they're it's, it's around, the, around the middle of the movie. The guys are about to go to a party, but they're sitting in a diner and they're having they're sitting in a restaurant having a conversation about how Tarantino rips off Scorsese. And the entire time, the director is deliberately ripping off Scorsese and then rips off Tarantino. Um, and if I can find the scene, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'm not going to put the audio in here like I have because it you can't listen to it. You have to watch it. But Pulp Fiction was one of seriously was one of the best movies in 1994 and and for all of its influence for all of its newness of the time for all that it did that wasn't being done by other people or at least by other people in the mainstream of cinema is why I think it really really deserves a, a, the best picture over over Forrest Gump which was almost the definition of a mainstream movie um and what it also did to prove, it helped prove, or it helped kind of, it was almost like the final statement that there was a lot of talent outside of the big studios, which we'd seen indie movies making En-ROADS in the earlier part of the decade, and this was almost like the final, like the concluding argument, so to speak, of that, because within the next couple of years, you would have Fargo and The English Patient, and, and then you'd eventually, by the end of the decade, have Shakespeare in Love, like Miramax. This was like almost Miramax finally just kind of planting its flag and, and then going forward. And uh, the other thing that this was, was this was the studios and Hollywood realizing that the youth culture that they'd been trying to woo for the last couple of years with stuff like singles and reality bites, for instance, 
wasn't interested in looking into the mirror when they went to the movies. They wanted to see stuff that was cool. They wanted to see this violence. You know, this is a depraved movie in some regards, but it's different. It's new to to a lot of this audience. It was considered avant garde. It was it was not pandering. And and like I said, it hit me and a lot of people just at the right moment. And you know what? I hadn't watched it in a good fifteen years before I sat down to watch to do this podcast and I, I I streamed it on Netflix because for the life of me I cannot find my VHS copy. It's some buried somewhere in my basement in a box. I cannot find it. Anyway, um so I was streaming on Netflix at the time. Hopefully it still is. You can go check it out. It's aging very well. There are parts of it that look dated. There are bits and pieces of it that um that wouldn't be uh as viable you know that that would need to be changed if you were filming it today, but overall, it's it's definitely one of the new classics. And that's it. Next time around, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in 1994. Um, I'm gonna take a slightly longer break than I have with the last uh, few episodes because I have a two parter that's gonna come out. I'm gonna put them out back to back week one week after the other uh, about one of my favorite television shows of all time. And one of the best shows of the 90s. Uh, so come back in about three weeks or so. On, um, I, I plan on releasing the first part on August 25th, uh, 2014. So come back then. Until then, go to the blog for more stuff about 1994. More stuff about pop culture in general. And thank you for listening. And take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.